Thank you for listening to the Adult Explore the Bible Weekly Leader Training Podcast. This podcast is designed to help teachers prepare to lead a Bible study group using LifeWay's Explore the Bible adult resources. Each week, we review the Bible passage for that week's study, examine some questions teachers may face, and give some teaching tips along the way. I'm Dwayne McCurry, your host, and today I'm being joined by Bob Bunn. Bob is the editor of the Adult Commentary. So, Bob, thank you for being with us again. Uh, this is your third time this quarter you've been with us, isn't it? I think that's right. I kind of lost track, but I believe that's true. Yeah. yeah. So we'll be looking at session seven uh, of our study in the spring of 2022. Uh, session seven, we go off of our study of First and Second Thessalonians because it's Easter Sunday. We'll be looking at Matthew chapter 28. We'll be focusing on verses one through 10 and verses 16 through 20. The point of this lesson is that Jesus's resurrection assures believers of salvation. There's four major points to this study, resurrected, announced, encountered, and commissioned. Resurrected, we see that in verses 1 through 4 of Matthew 28. After the Sabbath, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary made their way to the tomb of Jesus. Prior to their arrival, an angel descended, causing the earth to quake, and he rolled back the stone over Jesus' tomb. The guards were overcome with fear and became as dead men. In those verses, we see that the empty tomb attests to Jesus's resurrection. Verses five through seven, which we've called announced, the angel calmed the women, declaring that Jesus was risen. The angel invited the women to see where Jesus had laid and to quickly tell the disciples that Jesus was alive and would meet them in Galilee. Just a summary statement here is the angel declared Jesus' resurrection. Verses 8 through 10, as we continue through the passage, we've entitled this encountered. The women quickly left and ran to tell the disciples. They were greeted by Jesus, and the women stopped and worshiped him. Jesus directed them to tell the disciples of his intent to meet them in Galilee. The main point for us is that eyewitness accounts affirm the resurrection of Jesus. We then skip down to verses 16 through 20, which we've entitled Commission. In these verses, disciples have traveled to Galilee, where they encountered Jesus. He announced his authority and commissioned his followers to make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching. He assured them of his presence until the end of the age. The main point for us in that particular section is that the spread of the gospel demonstrates the truth of the resurrection of Jesus. Everything that we're looking at in this passage points to and carries that idea of the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus is resurrected. He was announced. He was encountered, and he commissions us based on that resurrection. Bob, let's describe this scene starting out here with the when the women arrived. Is there anything that that could be compared to? Probably not. Uh, I mean, this is Easter is one of these incredible times in the church year, uh, and we're supposed to be living in the power of Easter every day as Christians, anyway. But to me, it's the greatest plot twist in history. Um, you know, the, it, it, we we read books and we watch movies partially because of how the story is going to change, and we get excited about that kind of stuff and how how things are going to work out in the end. And I really see that here because this this had a plot twist that no one could have expected. 
No one did expect it, even though Jesus had told folks time and time again, this is exactly what was going to happen. They still were caught by surprise. But Easter is the culmination of everything that that people fear and everything that people love and they enjoy. Um, It's the moment when our salvation is secured and our eternal life is assured. It's just, um, I really can't think of anything that really compares to it, except possibly the incarnation, (laughs) which is the other bookend of, of, of the Jesus story. But I think it's kind of cool to, to kind of setting the scene, talking about this, thinking about the guys and the women who were actually there, putting, putting ourselves in their sandals. This is such a familiar story to us. We, we read it every year. <laughs> it, it comes around like clockwork. And so, you know, it, it's kind of one way to, to get more out of it, maybe to kind of think about if we were in these people's position, how would we have responded? You know, the soldiers were there. Um, these guys weren't wimps. They were battle-tested. They were hardened. They had seen their fair share of violence and brutality, and, and they had come to do a job. And they'd probably been warned ahead of time that, you know, the disciples might try something. They might try to sneak in and take the body. And I think if, if this little ragtag group of disciples had come and tried to attack them, they could have handled that. But they couldn't handle an angel. <laughs> they couldn't handle the glory of God coming down. And so they just freaked out. They completely lost it. And, you know, and then you have these women on the other side of the spectrum who they were they were dealing with all these emotions of themselves. Um, you know, they were dealing with grief and loss because they had just seen Jesus be crucified and buried. They were dealing with confusion because they really thought he was the Messiah. They believed in that. And now if he really was dead, they pretty much had to go back to square one and start from scratch. They had to start looking for somebody else because apparently Jesus wasn't the answer. And, you know, they were trying to figure out, not necessarily in Matthew, but some of the other gospel writers tell us that they weren't 100% sure they could even get to Jesus. <laughs> they weren't sure they could move the stone. They weren't sure if, the, if the, the guards there would help them or if it would give them a hard time. So there was a little bit of that kind of anxiety going on. And I would imagine that, like all of us, when we deal with grief and when we like go to funerals or we go to visitations for folks who have died, we always talk about the good stuff, too. And we always try to remember the, the happy moments too. So all these things are working together in their lives and they haven't even gotten to the tomb yet. And then once they get to the tomb, here they are, this, this angel in, in white, who's just radiant. And he's sitting on this stone that they were afraid they couldn't move. And he's saying that Jesus is, is not there anymore, that their, their search was, was valid. You know, it's good to look for Jesus, but they were looking in the wrong place. And the invitation to check out the empty tomb and to become the first witnesses of the resurrection. Uh, it was a lot for them to take in, but I love how they responded with, uh, with their enthusiasm and with their passion and with their devotion and really with worship and reverence. And we'll kind of get to that, I think, in a little bit too. But that's, yeah, that's sort of the context, putting ourselves in the, in the place of each of those two groups. Yeah, the, the lesson from last week uh, from the from 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, talks about believers having hope when grieving. Yeah. And then we see these ladies here grieving in some ways uh, and, and really without hope. But then that changes when they meet Jesus. They see the empty tomb, they encounter the angel, but then meeting Jesus, that changes the whole conversation. And that would have been true for what was going on in the, the lives of the Thessalonians as well, where they were thinking about what about those who have already passed away? Have they missed the resurrection? 
and and the the sense of hopelessness they would have had. So there are ways for us to connect mm -hmm. uh, last week's lesson with what we're doing this week in Matthew. Now let me let's go ahead and talk about that. There's this fear and joy all happening at the same time for the for the the women when they meet Jesus. Is that the norm? Should we expect that same kind of response when we encounter Jesus? Uh, I, I think yes, uh, is the short answer to that. Now, I, I kind of want to flip-flop those a little bit and talk about joy first, because it's the easiest one to think about. Yeah, I think joy should always be a part of our encounters with Jesus. As believers, as his children, we have no reason to fear. That's what the angel told them at the at the at the empty tomb, that, you know, do not fear. They didn't, while, the, while the, the guards were terrified, petrified, paralyzed by fear, these ladies had nothing to worry about. They had nothing to fear. They, they had nothing but celebration uh, that, that they were looking at. So, you know, Paul says that the, the joy is part of the fruit of the spirit. It should be a natural outflow of our relationship with Jesus. So it's hard for me to imagine uh, as a believer, uh, any encounter with Jesus that shouldn't be, be filtered through joy. Um, just, just knowing that he's, that he loves me, that he's at work in my life, uh, that he's constantly doing things for me. You know, I, as I was thinking about these questions, I, my mind kind of went back to deism, which is, you know, this idea that, that, you know, God created everything and then kind of like wheel of fortune gave the, gave the wheel one big spin and let it go and, and then took his hands off of it and that he's, he's not actively involved in the lives of people. He really doesn't care. He's, he's a distant observer. And that's, that's not what we see in Scripture. What we see in Scripture is a God who's intimately acquainted with us, who is intimately involved, so much so that he became a human being and walked the earth like we did. And Easter is the ultimate example of God's participation <laughs> in the human experience. Yeah, it's it's sure. the ultimate example of him inserting himself into our story. And so, you know, I take comfort in that, and it brings me joy to know that he was willing to do that. Um, now, the fear, I think it depends on what you mean by fear, obviously. There's, there's two different ways to look at fear. One was, if you want to look at it from the, Romans, the Roman guard side, they were, they were afraid. <laughs> they were terrified. Um, they, they just, as we just mentioned a minute ago, they just couldn't handle the whole experience. Um, they, were, they were used to using fear as a weapon. They were usually on the other side of the fear spectrum where they were, they were imposing fear upon people. And now the tables had turned on them and, the, and they were the ones that were terrified. But then there's fear that's more like a reverence or a worship or, or an awe, if you want to think of it in that way. And that's what the women experienced. And I think that is what Jesus wants us to, to have. That's the kind of fear he wants to, us to approach him with. Not, not this terror of what he's going to do as judge but gratitude and appreciation and respect and worship for what he's already done for us and for who he is. Uh, I think if, if we look at it that way, then yeah, fear and joy need to be integral parts of our experiences with Jesus every day. Especially when you think of it in terms of reverence. I don't know uh, that we are as reverent towards God um, as we should be in our society today. I don't know that we we fear him in the sense of recognizing him as creator and us as not being creator. And we, at least in my opinion, we tend to be more along the lines of I'm in charge. He's not, he's just helping me manage what I want to manage. Yeah. There's this, there's, there's this great concept of, you know, that as we, as we fear God, we learn more about him and we see who he is. And as we see who he is, 
we learn more about who we are and who he has created us to be. You know, the women, when they encountered Jesus, they immediately worshiped him. They immediately fell down in reverence. And that's, that's a theme throughout scripture. Anytime someone encounters God or encounters Christ as, as God, they, they naturally fall down and worship him. And either because they're, they're aware of their sin or because they're just, uh, they're just blown away by who he is and by his presence. And uh, again, I, that's, I think you're right. I think we do, we get a little too much, we get a little too comfortable with the idea of God <laughs> and, and the fact that he loves us. And we sing Jesus loves me all the time. And we forget just how awesome and powerful he is and just how much we need to respect him. There's some commands given to the women in this passage. They're told to go find the disciples, tell them, and tell them to uh, meet Jesus in Galilee. There's commands given at the Great Commission. So a question that, that may be asked is, how are the commands to the women similar to the commission given in verses 18 through 20? Now, you know this, the, the listeners may not, but I had the privilege to actually write the the personal study guide stuff for this for this quarter and before I became an editor at Lifeway and so I served as a writer and so this was one of my last assignments before I became an editor and and so as I wrote this lesson I loved this lesson it was great as I was using it as I was studying as a writer I noticed three things that the women received when they came to the empty tomb uh, one of them was they received a message the angel told them Jesus isn't here anymore uh, he's risen just as he said. The second thing that they received was an invitation. Why don't you come and look at the empty tomb yourself? Why don't you see where he laid and become eyewitnesses, really the first eyewitnesses? And I think it's, it's significant to point out, and I think we do in our resources, that, uh, that women's, the testimony of women was not, was not really accepted in first century Jewish life. And so these ladies becoming the first uh, eyewitnesses to give testimony to, to the resurrection is just another example of the upside down kingdom. Um, that, that Jesus and God, they don't do things the way we normally do. And if the apostles had really, um, had really wanted to, um, really wanted to, to make a statement or to validate the experience, they would not have made women the first eyewitnesses. They would have come up with a different story if it wasn't true. But because it's true, uh, that helps validate uh, for us the, the truth of the, of, the, of the Easter story. But anyway, they received that invitation. And the third thing they received was an assignment to go and tell, to go and share what they had learned. And now when you fast forward and get closer to uh, the end of the chapter, you kind of see those three same three gifts, if you want to think of them as, in terms of gifts, three things that were given. They were also given to the disciples. They also received a message. The women told them, you're supposed to go and you're supposed to meet Jesus at such and such a place at such and such a time. And so they received a message from, from them. Uh, of course, they, the women by that time hadn't just seen the empty tomb. They had actually seen Jesus. And so they made it even more powerful for them. But they also, the disciples also received an invitation. Go to the mountain, see Jesus face to face. He'll be able to explain everything that you want to, that you, he'll be able to answer your questions and explain the things that you need to have explained to you and kind of give you your, your marching orders there from that point on. So they received the message and they received the invitation, but then they also received the assignment. And that's what we call the Great Commission. And it's, it's sort of the, 
the foundational part of of the Christian life around, you know, for a lot of folks is that, you know, they build the Christian life around the Great Commission and the fact that we're supposed to go and to make disciples. Um, I, I, I always loved um, verses 18 through 20. And, and the way I remember, um, or the way I like to think about it is this, it's like a sandwich. There's some really great meat in the middle of it around verses 19, where we're told to, to actually go and to make disciples. But then that meat is also held together by two really incredible parts of pieces of bread. The first is the promise of Jesus' power in verse 18, where he says, all authority has been given to me, and I share it with you. And then at verse 20, where he promises his presence. So you have his power and his presence, where he says, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the world. And so this, this meat of the, of the Great Commission is held in place by the promise of his power and his presence, like a sandwich is. It's kind of a simple illustration, but it's something that that I, I I'm kind of simple sometimes, and so it helps me remember those kind of things. But I think Jesus understood that to fulfill the meat, we were going to need the bread. <laughs> we are going to need His power. We are going to need His presence. So He shared them uh, generously as He sent folks out. So yeah, I think I think there's a lot of parallels between what the women heard and what the men heard. In Quick Source, it talks about uh, in the Dig Deeper feature the missionary heart of God, and it tracks the missionary heart of God through the Old Testament. It talks about uh, in uh, Abraham's life in Genesis 18 and 22 and 26, where God makes it known to Abraham that part of the purpose is for him to make himself known to all the nations. He then looks at Deuteronomy 4, or the, Pat, the, uh, the, the writer looks at Deuteronomy 4, uh, where God talks about his glory being in the eyes of the people. Israel would see that, God's, God's demonstration of himself. Then he talks about David and Goliath, uh, identifies that passage, and that the outcome of that event was that all the world would know that Israel has a God, which relates to the missionary heart of God. Then he brings up Isaiah, Isaiah 56, where God makes a provision for foreigners so that they could know him through the witness of Israel. Then from there, he moves to Jonah and Nineveh, uh, where God goes to great lengths to put Jonah in a position uh, to deliver a message to the great city of Nineveh in spite of Jonah's stubbornness. So it's, it's tracking through from the beginning, from Genesis into the Minor Prophets, Jonah, different ways God's missionary heart is seen. So it shouldn't have been a surprise to the disciples when he gave, when Jesus gave this commission here in Matthew 28, that that would be the commission because it's been being created, anticipated throughout the Old Testament. And so I, I think that's important for us to keep in mind. There is a, something in this passage that fascinates me, that gets my attention, and that's in verse 17. You have Jesus standing there resurrected and it says some doubted um he's standing there in front of them how can that be <laughs> they couldn't believe their eyes i guess but now uh, <laughs> one of the and one of the interesting things about uh, of course the new testament was written in greek rather than english and we translated in english over the years and but one of the things about new testament greek is it's really much more fluid uh, than english is um, our readers might, our listeners might be uh, familiar with the idea of love in Greek and how Greek has several words to describe different kinds of love, whereas English has love. Uh, 
That's all we have. So when I saw this question, I, I mean, my first question in my mind was, what word did Matthew use? <laughs> what did he, you know, is there some flexibility in there? And it turns out there is a little bit. Uh, the word that he used for doubt isn't really what we think of as doubt. It isn't disbelief. It isn't skepticism. It isn't incredulity. It isn't calling something into question. It's more like hesitation. It's more like not quite being sure what to do next. Um, having a divided opinion, you might you might think of it in terms of the old the old saying about straddling a fence. You know, the, these folks. It's not that they didn't really necessarily believe what they were seeing. It's just they weren't quite sure how, what to do with it, <laughs> and and how a to lot work. to take in. Yeah, it was a lot to take in, and you know, so some some commentators have said that that you know Jesus was somehow disguised for some of these people. Uh, like when Mary Magdalene met him at the tomb and didn't recognize him until he he called her name, or the or the disciples who encountered him in Luke on the road to Emmaus, they didn't quite know who he was until a certain point. And it, they 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 say maybe there was something like that going on. I tend to think that they they in their minds they knew it was Jesus, <laughs> but they weren't sure how to respond. <laughs> they probably doubted themselves more than they doubted him, uh, and, and maybe they. Maybe they weren't sure what to do with him. Maybe they weren't sure if he was going to even accept them. You know, some of the disciples had issues with abandoning Jesus uh, on the night of his crucifixion, and they had to wrestle with that kind of stuff. And maybe there were others there who were like that as well. I think it's it's kind of important as you think about this is, is these, these folks who doubted probably weren't the 11 remaining disciples. There was a bigger crowd there on the mountain that day. Uh, I think the disciples were probably the ones that worshiped him in that verse. And then, but there were probably many others who had not experienced Jesus yet. The disciples, from what we know from the other gospels, had the benefit of previous experiences with Jesus. He'd already shown up and dealt with their doubts, like Thomas. He, he, they had seen him, and they had had time to kind of process the resurrection. They'd had 40 days to kind of think, okay, this is where this is going, and to, to finally make those connections between what he had prophesied about himself and what the, what the Old Testament prophets had said about him and how it was all being fulfilled. They had had the luxury of that. Some of these folks probably hadn't yet. They were early on in the process, and so for them, um, you know, it, it was a challenge, and I, but I think it's cool that, that Jesus meets us where we are, that, and because I, I can relate to all this, this doubt. I can, there are times when I should believe and I don't, even if I know God is right there with me, I know God is doing things that, that only he can do in my life. Um, I still struggle with doubt. I still struggle with wondering if, I'm, if it's really true, if it's really real. And so I can relate to these folks. But Jesus, Jesus, if we're ready to worship him, he will accept that. He'll take it. He took it from the women. He took it from these people on the mountain, probably the disciples, the, the apostles. But he's also there. He's also okay with our, with our questions. He's also questioned, okay with our fears and our other emotions. And he gives us the space to kind of work through that kind of stuff. And I, I really appreciate that about Jesus because I'm, I probably relate to these folks more often than I relate to the apostles, to be honest. But he, he, knows, he knows that once we do get it worked out, we're going to see him as he is. And that's going to, we're going to be loyal and we're going to be in it to the end. And that's really his goal. It's not, it's not that he has to snap his finger and make it change automatically. It's that once, he, once we do have, uh, he does have our hearts, it, it's a done deal. And, and that's really what he wants more than anything, no matter how long it takes. Now, this is one of my favorite Sundays out of the year to get to teach mm -hmm. because we, we're going to be looking at 
something that is so critical to our beliefs, to our doctrine, to what defines us as Christians. Uh, if we can't get excited for this lesson, we just can't get excited. Mm. Uh, it's the resurrection. And so I'm looking forward to teaching this Sunday. Bob, thank you for being with us today. I want to encourage our listeners to take a look at our blog posts. They're found on goexplorethebible.com forward slash blog. There's a new one posted every Thursday. These posts will help you better understand Explore the Bible resources and some of the ideas behind these resources. Once again, that's goexplorethebible.com forward slash blog. Thank you for listening to us today. We hope you'll encourage other teachers to tune in next week. We'll be returning to our study of 1 Thessalonians. We'll be looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 1 through 11. And the main point there is God holds all people accountable for their actions. How'd that work for you, Bob? I thought it went pretty well. It I felt did pretty too. good. Uh, yeah. the, uh, <laughs> based on the amount of mail that we get around Easter time, we know that our readers like Easter as well. Oh, man. <laughs> I'm trying to head some of that off at, at December. I've got a blog post that I'm working on. It's entitled Christmas Lessons, Lesson, or None at All. <laughs> And it's on, on our practice about Christmas and why we do what we do. And, and I'll include Easter in that blog post, but yeah. it'll be uh, interesting to see the response to that. It'll go, that's going to go the week before Christmas on the ETB blog post. Okay. <laughs> oh, me. Okay, session 13. I've changed the last question. Um, how does benevolence fit into what Paul was saying? Uh, how do we discern? Who needs benevolence and who needs? I changed that second question to this. Okay. Okay. How do we discern who needs benevolence and who needs encouragement? <laughs> and by encouragement, we mean discipline. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I put it in quotes on my piece of paper here. Let me make sure I get them bigger so I'll know. Yeah, and that's really. Uh, I think the answer is going to kind of go toward focus on that distinction between those who need it and those who don't. And how do you know the best way to um, be benevolent without being entitled and promoting entitlement? All right, good. Um, <clears throat> this concludes our study too of Second Thessalonians 2. Yeah. Yes. And I've got the, the first King study up on my screen so I can remember what it is. I am going to point out an alternate to start the lesson. I'll do this at the end, which is in the leader guide. And so um, it deals with waiting. So uh, I'm ready to go if you are for session 13. Let's do it. All right. Thank you for listening to Adult Explore the Bible Weekly Leader Training Podcast. This podcast is designed to help teachers prepare to lead a Bible study group using LifeWay's Explore the Bible adult resources. Each week, we review the Bible passage for that week's study, examine some questions teachers may face, and give some teaching tips along the way. I'm Dwayne McCrary, your host, and today I'm being joined by Bob Bunn. Bob's been with us several weeks uh, during this quarter, and Bob is the editor for the adult commentary, but he also wrote the personal study guide, I believe, is what you wrote, the personal study guide for this quarter. So it's been a, a good ex, a, a opportunity for us to not only have an editor in the podcast, but also one of the writers. We're going to be looking at session 13 for study in First and Second Thessalonians. It's our last session in 
our study here of, of First and Second Thessalonians. We're going to be looking at chapter 3, verses 6 through 15. The summary statement for this lesson is that believers are to live in obedience while waiting on the return of Christ. This is a theme that Paul's repeated more than once in his letters to the Thessalonican. And so that's how he concludes the letter as well. So that's what we're going to be looking at. There's three main points here for us to consider. They are established standards, provide, and discipline. The first one, established standards, comes from verses 6 through 9 of chapter 3. In these verses, Paul challenged his readers to not associate with people who were idle or who rejected his teachings. He pointed to himself as an example of a hard worker, given the Thessalonians. <laughs> He pointed to himself as an example of a hard worker, giving his readers an example to imitate. The main point for us is that believers must hold up standards that remove barriers to the gospel. The second point, provide, verses 10 through 12. Paul reminded the Thessalonians that he had taught that an able person unwilling to work should go hungry. These idle busybodies needed to be encouraged to work and provide for themselves. The main point for us is that providing for our families is one way we demonstrate Christ to others. Bob, we're going to talk more about that issue here in just a minute. The third point comes from verses 13 through 15. In these verses, Paul encourages readers to remain tireless in doing good and to not associate with those who refuse to follow his teachings and to do so in love and not as enemies. For us, we must understand that believers should lovingly hold other believers accountable. So we've got the issue of church discipline, waiting, all kinds of things here in this study. Uh, let's talk out, let's start with this, uh, Bob. Paul directed them to separate themselves from the idle and disobedient. How can we do this without exhibiting an ex an attitude, let's say, of superiority, uh, or do it in a way where it, it's not harsh, but we it demonstrate love uh, when we do follow what Paul is calling for here. Yeah, I think the, a good starting point for this is to remember exactly how these people were affecting the church in Thessalonica, what kind of impact they were having. Uh, Paul's words sound really harsh, and in a way they are, but because of the nature of their sin, these people needed a wake-up call. <laughs> they needed a strong statement against them. These were folks who, they weren't, they were, they were idle. Uh, they, were they were idle, yet they were busybodies. <laughs> they were active, but they were active in the wrong kind of things. They were actively working against the, the best interests of the church. Um, the word that's, that's, that's used uh, in, in the passages it was often used of soldiers who refused to march in formation. They were always wanting to go their own way, and they would stray off from one side to the other instead of staying in the formation. And so these folks were regularly stepping outside of, of what was proper Christian behavior so that they could do their own thing, so they can meet their own needs or, or, or fulfill their own desires. And that would have a negative impact on the church because the church wouldn't be able to minister as effectively it would have a, an impact on the individual congregation members because they were being abused. They were being taken advantage of by these folks. And it would have a, it would have a negative impact on the church's reputation in the city. 
Uh, these people outside the church, you know, unbelievers can only judge the church by what they see in Christians. And so if they're watching the church and they're seeing this, this kind of behavior being allowed, uh, they, they may assume that it's even encouraged. And, but on the other hand, if they see Paul stepping up and the church stepping up and, and calling them out and rebuking them and correcting them, then that lets them know that, that there may really be something to this church thing, to this, this Christianity thing. So, yeah, Paul's a little harsh, but it needed to be done. It needed to be said that way. As far as how we handle it, I think he hit the nail on the head when you said in love. You know, how do we do this in love? Um, that's what really keeps us from, from crossing a line that we're not supposed to cross when it comes to correcting one another, when it comes to church discipline. The purpose is always love. Paul's purpose was never vengeance. It was restoration. He, he, he didn't want to get back at them. He didn't want to necessarily punish them. He wanted to restore them to the body. These were not lost people going out and doing their own thing. These were members of the church. These were brothers and sisters. He uses the term brothers and sisters constantly in this letter. And these were brothers and sisters. He even says in, in later in verse, verses 14 and 15, you don't remember that these folks are, are, they're your people. They're your brothers and sisters. So, you know, don't consider them as enemies, but bring them back in. Um, and love's the only way to do that. Now, it, it requires tough love, uh, which in our culture is sort of countercultural. Uh, it, it seems kind of harsh. It seems kind of mean. But sometimes that's the only way to, to really produce the effect. It's the only way to really get people to pay attention and to see how far, how far out of line they have gotten. Uh, would, it you know, I be, have uh, would it be safe to say that we should find joy in the restoration, but not in the confrontation? Yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, I know, I know going back into the Old Testament, Paul or Paul, going back into the Old Testament, God often said, I don't take any delight in punishing my children, but he loved them enough to keep them from letting them keep going the way they were going. And that's sort of the way it is with the Christian life, too. We don't we don't take any particular pleasure or sadistic joy in seeing people suffer. But at the same time, we have to be we have to be faithful first and foremost, to who God is and, and what his call on our lives should be. And sometimes that means saying no to people we love. Uh, you know, I had a boss who used to say, he was famous for saying, to be unclear is to be unkind. And so I think Paul is just saying, you know, be clear. <laughs> be clear with these folks. Uh, the, love, the most loving thing that you can do to them is to call them out, to tell them exactly how it's going to be, and then stick to your guns and treat them the way that you say that you're going to treat them. But you do it in love because that's what brings them back. And sometimes no is the most loving thing you can say to somebody. In verses seven through nine, he, he continues that idea about imitate us. Because um, if you're going to confront somebody, you've got to be setting the standard yourself. And so in, in these verses, he talks about imitate us. He says, we were not idle among you. We did not eat anyone's food free of charge. We labored and toiled. We worked night and day uh, so that we wouldn't be a burden to any of you. He, he makes those kind of statements. Uh, it, it's, it's a, it's a fishbowl. He's talking about he lived in a fishbowl. Um, how does that help us understand how to pray for our pastor and other church leaders? Uh, I think we would say they live in a fishbowl, and we as leaders may do that as well. We may be living in a fishbowl. We just don't know it. Um, we may not have that same standard, but how does that inform how we pray for church leaders? 
Yeah. Yeah. I think Paul definitely understood that he lived in a fishbowl. He understood that people were watching him constantly. Uh, believers were watching him because they needed an example. And so he was able to say, okay, I'm, I'm, you know, I've done this for you. I've done this for you. I've shown you this way of life. So you can imitate me because I'm imitating Christ. And so he understood that. He also understood that people outside the church were watching him pretty closely because they were wanting to trip him up or they were looking for signs of hypocrisy or anything that they could use to discredit the church and discredit the message of the gospel. And so he understood that. But I almost think knowing Paul, you know, through what I see in the scriptures, I think Paul kind of thrived on that. You know, a lot of people today, when they think about living in a fishbowl, it's it's the stress, it's the pressure, you know, celebrities and athletes and famous people talk about how, how hard it is to live in a fishbowl in a social media culture where nothing ever gets turned off and no one ever shuts up. You know, it's just, it's can you Can you imagine what it would be like for Paul to have social media? Oh yeah. I mean, it'd be crazy, oh. but, but I mean, it, Paul, Paul, I, you know, I tend to think he probably would have embraced it the way he embraced it when in the first century, he just went about, Paul, Paul was a simple man. He just went and lived his life for Jesus as best he could every day. And he was going to let God take care of the results. And so, you know, his, his focus is always to live for God, to live for Jesus and to, to demonstrate Christianity in a way that was winsome, in a way that was attractive, and in a way that would draw people to the faith and to, to Christ. And so for him, pressure and stress probably were part of the fishbowl, but it was something that kept him accountable. It was something that reminded him every day that he had to live in line with Jesus. He had to lean into Jesus and to trust him because he was going to make a mistake and he was going to, he was going to blow things up if he didn't. Now, again, I think you mentioned, you mentioned our pastors. Yes, our pastors definitely live in a fishbowl. And honestly, sometimes the, 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 the most stress and pressure that they experience probably comes from us as the average church members. You know, I remember talking to a pastor one time. Uh, he was kind of going through a stage where he was he was experiencing some friendly fire. Some of his his church folks had kind of gotten their their nose out of joint about some things and were were giving him a hard time through emails and maybe through gossip and things like that. And so I asked him, I said, you know, how do you how do you deal with that kind of stuff? How do you deal with that kind of pressure? You know, that the fishbowl we're talking about, the fishbowl mentality. And he told me, I'll never forget, he said. He says, yeah, I've come to discover that some of God's lambs have really sharp teeth. <laughs> and I've never forgotten that. And it, it, it reminds me to be gracious <laughs> to our pastors, to be gracious to our leaders, because they are, they are just kind of trying to do their, their thing. And, and they're trying to live for God the best sense they can. And we don't always have to agree with them. I don't know that I've ever had a pastor that I've, I've agreed with 100% of the time. But I don't go around backbiting them, and I don't go around stabbing them, and I, I don't go around uh, assassinating their character. Instead, I, I try to pray for them. And here's, Dwayne, here's one of the things I've learned. There's two ways you can pray for your pastor. One is to pray for your pastor, that if you don't agree with them, if you don't agree with your pastor, pray that God changes his heart. But there's another side to that coin. As you pray for your pastor, and you pray about things that you disagree with him on, pray that God changes your heart too. One of you is probably wrong. We just have to have the humility and the boldness to admit that it could be us. <laughs> that maybe both he's right. It could be not. both of us being wrong. It, it could be. It could be. But the idea is not assuming that I'm right and he's wrong. Have enough grace and have enough humility to, to admit, you know, maybe I'm not seeing things the way God sees it. And so just ask God to help 
the situation work out according to his glory. And if that means the pastor needs to change, that's great. If it means that I need to change, that's great. Or as you pointed out, maybe both of us need to wiggle a little bit. And if that's true, that needs to happen too. But the, the, but the point is that I think we serve our pastor best when we lift him up to God and, and ask God to help him become the man he created to be. Now, one last thing, and we'll kind of close on, on this question on this. We're all living in a fishbowl. <laughs> you know, the world is looking at each one of us. If we claim the name of Jesus, the world has its scope on us. And so we have to have that same kind of intentional attitude and that same intentional lifestyle that says, I want to live for Jesus because I do not want to do anything that brings him shame. I don't want to do anything that embarrasses him. I want to do stuff that lifts him up because that's when he draws people to himself. Yeah, if we're going to put a fish on the back of our car, then we better act like we're a Christian driving that car. That's true. Uh, you know, I will say this well, before I move past this. I said, you know, they, you both could be wrong. There is a, there are some cases where both could be right. And you just have to come to, to understanding of how the, those two rights work together, mm -hmm. uh, even though they may seem to be contradictory. Yeah. Uh, that's part of the beauty of, of God is that he is much more complex than we can handle. And we need to be okay with that. Now, yeah, we assume things are black and white and they, never, they yeah. rarely are. Thinking of that, there's one more question in this in this lesson, and that is how does benevolence fit into what Paul was saying here? Um, how do we discern who needs benevolence and who needs, uh, let's just call it encouragement? <laughs> yes, and, and, and by encouragement, I assume we're going to talk about, we're talking about discipline or correction. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Uh, you know, that's, it's kind of a code word in Christian life. We want to encourage yeah. you. Uh, yeah, so, yeah. yeah. Well, I, th I think obviously the church is wired to minister. The church is wired to meet needs. We meet needs of, of our own people within the, the walls of the church through discipleship, through helping them become more like Jesus. And But we're also called to meet needs outside the church walls, and that's evangelism and compassion and, and ministry kind of stuff. So, you know, we are definitely called to do that. And I don't think Paul in any way, shape, or form was saying you know, let's just cut off all of the supplies and we're not going to be generous to anybody and we're not going to give anybody anything because we might be, somebody might take us, take advantage of us or somebody might misuse it, you know, and use, abuse it. And I don't think he's saying that at all. Uh, I do think though that he's saying be really careful <laughs> that there is a difference between those who, who cannot support themselves and those who will not support themselves. When he talks about those who don't work, don't eat, He's not talking about the widows and orphans who can't help themselves. He's not talking about the person who really was out trying to find a job every day and can't do it and just trying to figure out how to pay their electricity bill. He's talking about the lazy slugs who are, who are just trying to beat the system one way or another. And they were all over the place, apparently, in Thessalonica. Now, there were in the first century, as I pointed out, widows and orphans had a terrible time supporting themselves. You know, it was a male-dominated culture, an adult male-dominated culture. And so if you were a, a single woman or, or a widow or a child, it was it was really, really hard. And so it was, church a, it, was a, it was a culture that mm -hmm. um, opened itself for the for abuse of those those individuals. Exactly. Yeah. And exploitation. Yeah. Big time well, exploitation. 
who Jesus called the least of these, they were at the top of the list probably. And yeah. so, you know, it, it was perfectly right for the church to come. And there was, there was even adult men there at that time that if they joined the church, there were, they might've had trouble finding a job because some of the unbelievers and some of the pagans, because they might've been hesitant to hire a Christian, either through persecution or suspicion. And so there may have been folks who were struggling that way too. No fault of their own, not that they weren't trying, but just because of the circumstances in that area, the church needed to come alongside them and support them, at least for a short amount of time. But Paul was really zeroing in on these folks who, who just refused to do anything to support themselves. And either because they were lazy or because I think some of them probably heard Paul talk about the, the return of Jesus and thought, oh, this is going to happen tomorrow. There's, I can just quit my job and sit on a mountain and wait for him to come back and the church will take care of me until then. They had this misguided idea of the Messiah. And what Paul is saying is that Jesus might come back tomorrow. You might be completely right about that. Obviously, we know from hindsight, it's been 2,000 years. We don't know when he's coming back. But Paul's point was, whenever he comes back, if it's tomorrow or if it's 2,000 years from now, you need to stay on task. You need to keep living your faith out the way you're supposed to living. You're supposed to continue to support yourself continue to do the things that you're called to do. You know, later in his life, Paul wrote a letter to Timothy and said that anyone who doesn't support their own family is worse than an unbeliever. And so, you know, you, 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 th you filter this situation through that kind of attitude. You think, oh, this is really serious. That if I don't, if I'm just being lazy or if I'm for whatever shirking my responsibility as the provider of my family, then I am worse than somebody who, who, who rejects Christ. And so, you know, Paul is saying, stay at it. Be faithful to your family. Be faithful to your, to your Savior each step of the way, because he is coming back. And when he comes back, you want him to come back and find you doing the things you're supposed to be doing. Yeah, the, the leader guide talks a lot about here about waiting. Uh, that's the name of the lesson, obviously. Right. But one of the ideas here is to begin the lesson with a little bit different approach. And that is to, first of all, have folks standing outside the, the room you're using and then invite everybody in, make them wait outside and then share some statistics about waiting in the United States from 2020. Uh, the statistics that are given in the leader guide are that Americans spend an average of 13 hours annually on hold for customer service. Wow. Um, then uh, average American commuter spends 38 hours each year waiting in traffic. And then they note that big cities uh, could be more than 50 hours. And then the last statistic is that we spend annually 37 billion hours, that's everybody, all Americans, waiting in line for something. Hmm. So it, it encourages us to have the, share that information and then discuss the difference between waiting in line and waiting for an event like the return of Christ. Uh, one of the things that, that could be done is go ahead and have folks come on in, have the statistics up, let them debate on whether those numbers are true or not and how they've experienced it and how you deal with waiting. And then from that, you would begin then to transition into a conversation about what's happening here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 about the value of waiting in obedience, uh, knowing that the return of Christ could be today. It may be tomorrow, but it could be today mm -hmm. and not just sitting around 
not doing anything, goofing off, I guess would be the best way to say it, uh, in anticipation of that, but being busy at doing what God's called us to do when he returns is the value being presented here. Uh, but the leader guide, that's one way we can, can bring that conversation into this lesson. Bob, are there any other key ideas, key thoughts that you would share with, the, with our listeners before we go today? No, I do like that activity from the leader guide because human beings by nature are not very good waiters. And so sometimes we have to learn to wait and we have to learn how to actively wait. You know, Paul lived with the same, Paul filtered everything he did through the fact that Jesus was coming back. That was, that was sort of the engine that, that drove pretty much everything that he did in ministry. And so he understood that Jesus could come back tomorrow or today. He understood that Jesus could come back next year, but that never stopped him from working and doing the things that he needed to do. And even we've, we've seen other places in the Thessalonian letters that he, you know, he worked a second job <laughs> to support himself on top of his ministry in the church. So, you know, if, if Paul didn't use his, Jesus' return as an excuse to slack off, then, then I don't think we can either. I, I would agree with that. Uh, from time to time, <clears throat> excuse me, Bob, thank you for sharing that with us. Uh, from time to time in the podcast, we mentioned different resources in the Explore the Bible family. Today, we mentioned the Leader Guide. There's a variety of other resources. And you can find out more about all that is included in the Explore the Bible family by going to our website at goexplorethebible.com. That's goexplorethebible, no spaces.com. Thank you for listening to us this week, and we hope you'll join us again next week. We'll be looking at session one of the summer resources, summer study of first and second Kings. We'll be looking at first Kings chapter three, verses four through 15. And the main idea there is that God offers wisdom to those who ask him. And we'd be looking at the life of Solomon. Boom. Let me say that again. Hang on. And we'll be looking at the life of Solomon. Let me take that out.